The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2015th January Leaders Retreat with Mike Heron with the CO Global Resource Center. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. Well, I want to tell you tonight that I almost quit the soccer school. And uh, it seemed to be working for others, but it really wasn't working for me. I was at a conference a lot like this my uh, third year of college. And uh, there was a group of my friends who had been instrumental in leading me to Christ. And they invited me to a conference. Now, the conference didn't have a name except discipleship. And that was really the beginning of campus outreach. I'll tell you about more about that in a minute. But we went to these seminars, and there are speakers talking about the importance of discipleship. And I had been committed to discipleship. I'd been trying to share Christ on my campus. In fact, I'd had three discipleship groups since I came to know Christ, and they'd all fallen apart. And uh, so I was pretty much at the point where I was thinking, discipleship's not for me. Now, um, as a new Christian, I was thankful that God had used somebody else's discipleship to bring me to faith in Christ. My uh, best friend, high school uh, teammate, um, came to know Christ our senior year of high school. I went off to college at a small Division II school, the University of North Alabama, to play football. And... Uh, he went to a school in Birmingham, University of Alabama, Birmingham, and he met some guys that were committed to discipleship. One of these guys, his name is Curtis Tanner, and Curtis began to disciple him and talk to him about sharing your faith with your friends and making a list of people that you could share with, and I was on his list, and I was somebody that uh, um, he wanted to share the gospel with. And so when I came home for Thanksgiving, my freshman year of college, he came over to my house, he uh, met with me, he kind of stumbled through a simple gospel presentation. He left me with a little gospel track, and uh, he was you know, trying to be a faithful disciple. I will say that what he said was not that uh, profound, and it didn't, I didn't, it didn't register at the time as something that you know was life-shattering. Sh- uh, I was... I was not a religious person, but also would have said that I was a Christian. I was not a Jew. I lived in America. I never killed any cats or did cruel things to old ladies crossing the street. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, Christian, good person, generally speaking, uh, you know, I'm for, I'm pro, pro religion. But what was interesting, I got back to school, and um, over the holidays, went back to school in January. And I just found myself kind of drawn to learning more about what he taught. One of the things he challenged me to do is read the Bible. And he said, you know, Jesus Christ explains not only our purpose, but he explains why he had to die and how we can have a relationship with God. And so my friends would go out, as I usually would go with them on a Thursday night to party. And I find myself staying home and... Say, so I got to do some studying. And then I found myself in my dorm room reading uh, a Bible that I had been given by my mother before I went off to college. I think it was like, I'd never read the Bible, but I think it was like 
this might be some protection or <laughs> you might need this, you know, like she knew I was at, at times kind of out of control. And, uh, but as I was reading that Bible, I found that little gospel tract. It had uh, just four basic ideas about God. First, his love. Secondly, uh, that man rebelled against God and was sinful. Third, that Jesus was sent to restore a relationship. And fourth, we receive uh, what Christ has done for us by faith. Just basic four spiritual laws, if you've ever heard of that. And uh, I just felt at that moment like God was speaking to me in this dorm room by myself with a little gospel track and a Bible open, I just found myself kind of moved to get down on my knees, slightly embarrassed, you know, but no one was there to, to uh, see me on my knees. And uh, I committed my life to Christ that night. Of course, you know, after a moment like that, you wonder if it was real and is, it, is anything gonna happen that's different. And I just would tell you, from that point on, I found myself just wanting to know more and more about a relationship with Christ and, and not as interested in a lot of things that seemed to keep my attention before then. So I went home, told him about it. Uh, he invited me to come during the summer to their discipleship group. So then their discipleship group. And uh, there we, we, I remember we did four weeks of lessons. Um, the first week, we talked about assurance of salvation. The second week, we talked about the Lordship of Christ. The third week, we talked about personal devotional life, having a quiet time, taking a 31-day experiment called the Taste and See to discover God's plan. And then the fourth week, we talked about the process of discipleship. And Curtis, who was leading the discipleship group, drew those circles that these guys were talking about and put me in the story and said, God's plan is for you to tell someone else who will 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 tell you and then you will tell someone else who will tell someone else who will tell someone else and Tell somebody all around the world in every single place and we're going to reach the world for Christ. Well, I'll tell you, if I didn't have a big enough ambition or career goal, I found one right then when I looked at those circles and I said, that's a, that's a big enough vision for my life. I'll do that. That's what I want to do. So I committed to discipleship. But there I was three years later at a conference ready to quit. And uh, every discipleship group I pulled together seemed to somehow fall apart. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't quite figure out, you know, I went through the four lessons. You know, we did the assurance of salvation the first week. And then we did the uh, uh, worship of Christ the second week. And then personal devotional life. And then we drew the circles and they were supposed to take this thing and tell someone who would tell someone who would tell someone and who would tell someone who would reach the world, right? And, uh, but there I was wondering about that. So I talked to uh, Curtis afterwards and uh, he said, well, Mike, I've been wanting to talk to you because I'd like you to come. We're going to start an organization or a team and uh, we want to, at this point, there was no full-time staff. We want to hire you 
and we're going to go on campuses. And I, I was like, now wait a minute, do you know me? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the guy whose discipleship groups fall apart, you know, and uh, you want me to, no, no, no we're going to train you in that, we're going to learn about what that's all about. And, uh, and so as he talked to me about it, I was like, well, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. I was getting ready to graduate in business. My dad was a businessman. He was a, a director of a data processing center for an aircraft company. And uh, he had contacts, and he had made you know, some contacts for me to talk to some men for the uh, opportunity to, uh, to work. And my brother was a businessman in Nashville, and he had some contacts. So I had some things going. And I spent the spring really contemplating what do I do. And uh, you know, here, I'm being asked to come on staff with a, a ministry that didn't have a name. We were just discipleship. And, uh, and uh, or I had these expectations from my parents. My parents were not believers. My brother's not a believer. And I can recall late April driving from Nashville, Tennessee, back to Birmingham on Interstate 65 with my father. My brother had moved to Nashville. And uh, we had taken him some, you know, some of his things. Uh, set, he was setting up um, in a new, a new condo. And uh, I was contemplating how I was going to tell my dad that I was going to go on staff and work for discipleship. And uh, so uh, coming down the road, uh, I started thinking about how do I bring this up? What do I say? Um, you know, there was just no easy way to kind of bridge that, <laughs> kind of bridge that conversation. So finally, I just, my heart was just jumping out of my chest, and I just said, Dad, I'm going to go and staff with this Christian ministry, and uh, uh, I want you to, you and Mom to be supportive. So uh, it got real quiet. He just kept driving. Felt like he sped up, you know, but he did he wouldn't make eye contact, you know. And uh, so... The first thing he said, he waited, 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 and he said, uh, what's the name of the ministry? <laughs> and I thought, I can't say discipleship because that will be, you know, he'll never get it. So I said, well, we don't really have a name right now. Got silent again and he kept driving. So then he said, well, how much are they going to pay you? That's the second question. And I thought, how do I explain that I don't really get a salary? It's like something they've been telling me about, call it support raising. And so I started to try to get into that discussion. And my dad cut me off and he said, so you're going to be begging my friends for money. It's like, well, yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of, you know. And uh, it got silent again. I thought, oh, this is not going so good. And I was trying to so finally he said, how are you, I didn't expect this one, this is the next question, how are you going to pay for your kid's college? I'll have to admit, that caught me out of left field, I didn't expect that one. But you can kind of see, my dad was a uh, data processor, he's starting to put together, let's get the end in mind of where this is going, and basically what he was saying was, you know, there's something about being a man, being a husband and being a father where you provide for your children and you make a life for them where they can grow up and flourish just as I have done for you is basically the implication there and you're clueless you don't you know how are you going to do that so 
So, you know, I thought, well, okay, you know, got to go for the jugular here. I'm going to throw it out. This is my only answer. This is what I got. So I said, you know, just still ringing in the car is, how are you going to pay for your kid's college, you know? And uh, so I said, I'm going to trust God. Well, when I said that, I'm going to trust God, it was as if I was speaking Mandarin Chinese to someone who had never heard Ni Hao. That's hello in Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> uh, or any other Chinese word. He just, he just, it was just a glazed look like I was speaking a language. You're going to trust God. And he kind of repeated it under his breath. So you're going to trust God. And uh, I can just tell you, just the humiliation that I was feeling, the confusion and the hurt. And it was hard not to think back to that moment when I tried to quit discipleship. <laughs> About six months earlier, it was like, maybe I should have quit, you know, because I'm not very good at this thing. And, um, you know, my plan doesn't sound like I got a very sound plan. So we got home. I called Curtis. I, I told him I need to meet with him. I'm sure it was one of those rotary dial phones. Uh, I called Curtis, and I went over to meet with him, and I said, Man, we got to get a name. You know, we're going to be talking to people, and we don't even have a name. And so uh, that was the first thing he said. Okay, we can get a name, you know. So um, uh, we met together. There's about three, the three other guys, and then there was this one girl that we were all going to go on staff with discipleship. And uh, so, so we're going to be talking to people, and uh, we don't have a name, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the name. But um, during that during those moments of doubt on that uh, drive back from Nashville, there was a verse that I had memorized that kept coming to my mind. Turn, open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you have your Bible. And uh, this verse kept coming to my mind. I'd memorized it, but I hadn't really had something in mind when I memorized it. It's buried probably not as the most prominent verse in the midst of this passage here in 1 Peter 2. And uh, it's just a little phrase at the end of verse 6. It says, the one who trusts in him will never be disappointed. The one who trusts in him or hopes in him will never be disappointed. I want to read you a little bit more of that because I want to talk from this passage a little bit too. It says, putting aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy, envy and slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. This is 1 Peter 2.2. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as a living stone rejected by men but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built to a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer uh, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a precious, a chief a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who trusts in him shall never be disappointed. He who believes in him shall never, or he who hopes in him. The precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and their doom 
uh, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you should proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day or in the day of their visitation. So, that phrase became a cornerstone or a foundation that really summarized the invitation that God had given me, and really all of us, to build our lives on Him. And I guess my challenge to you tonight is going to come back to that idea. What really is your cornerstone? What are you building your life on? And I'll hope that as we talk through this, you're going to see that uh, there is a foundation, there is a cornerstone, uh, which is God Himself, who has proven his commitment to you in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you, and that you can build your whole life on this promise that the one who trusts in him will never be disappointed. Sounds a little bit too good to be true, doesn't it? But what he's saying is, put all your money on one horse. <laughs> Bank everything in your present, in your future, in your hopes, in your dreams, Put it all on me and let me show you what I can do for you. Um, when I think about Peter's idea here of, here of Cornerstone, there's a couple of contrasts here um, that I want you to see. But I really want to get back to this idea that you really can change the world by starting a discipleship group. Okay? That's where we're going with this thing. You really can't change the world by being a disciple and starting a discipleship group. And um, what's interesting about this is Peter, in this identity passage, talks in this passage talks about identity. It's a better way to say it. You know, he has that long list of you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, chosen race. Our cultural identity is now shaped by our connection with God. Royal priesthood, our vocational identity is that of royalty. We have a job to do to participate in God's spreading the world. Holy nation, we have a distinct direction that leads us uh, to a countercultural agenda. And then God's possessed people. We have this corporate identity. But in the end of that passage, he also says we're aliens and strangers. So we have this exalted identity, but we also have this identity complex of sorts. That somehow or another, we are moving towards and with the exaltation of not only ourselves, but of the work of God in the world, while we're also feeling awkward and strange and misunderstood and out of place. And that's where I was in my relationship with my family and in my commitment to Christ. I was growing and understanding this new identity, all the while feeling this awkwardness and this disappointment. And even, I was not very good at ministry. Now, to be honest, I was a little bit awkward with people. And I'm not sure exactly why, you know, Curtis wanted to 
uh, asked me to come on staff in the first place. But uh, uh, here I was, you know, trying to discover my uh, identity. And it's interesting that my relationship with my father, as well as my relationship with my family, kind of represented this tension. I can remember talking to my brother uh, about Christ. And right after I came to know the Lord, he was the person that I, I was really burdened for more than anybody else. When you first came to know Christ, who's that person that came to your mind that you're wondering, do they know this? Uh, it might have been a sibling. It could have been a best friend. Might have, you know, it might have been you know, somebody at school. It could have been somebody from your home life. But my brother was that person. He's 15 months older than me. Uh, we were highly competitive. Uh, he played college basketball. He's about six foot six. Uh, I played college football, but I wanted to play college basketball, and I wanted to beat him in, in basketball every day of my life. And so my whole world growing up was measured by, uh, you know, making my brother play me in the umpteenth game of basketball because he just beat me again, and I was going to prove to him that you know I was better than he was. But I had we shared a room together. Uh, pretty much, you know, grew, uh, had, had our experiences together in high school. So when I came to know Christ, I shared Christ with him, and he basically said, I don't want to hear about it. So I was in, at his house in Nashville um, <coughs> sometime later, and I was talking to him and his wife, and I was trying to bring up spiritual things, and he basically said, you're so arrogant, and you think you're better than I am because you quote the Bible and because you're following Christianity and you're serving God and he said you don't make me want to become a Christian you make me uh, want to ignore all this and I just wish you'd stop talking to me and then his wife started just kind of you know downloading all of her frustrations and disappointments about me and my Christianity and so I left that next day just thinking wow you know um, I'm not not only am I not a good disciple leader I'm not a very good evangelist you know my brother, my dad, you know, everybody around me seems to, um, I'm living this alien and stranger lifestyle where I'm feeling, as Paul said, uh, that uh, as we grow in fulfilling our ministry, we find ourselves further and further on the outside. But what's interesting is what God tends to do with disciples as well as ministers is he tries to get you to the point where you learn that you're not the savior of anybody. And you're not the answer to anybody's problems. And ministry is not you convincing somebody else that you figured it out. But ministry is helping other people understand that there is one who cares and who can answer their problems and provide solutions for them. And so it was a, I think it was a long journey. Uh, even when I came on staff, I started discipleship groups. We were at this little campus in Alabama. And I had like three or four go, and by the end of the semester, it was like the discipleship groups fell apart. It was like my fifth and sixth discipleship group I ever started. And it was like, I mean, some people were going on with the Lord, but it was like, I'm really not good at this thing. Maybe my dad is right, and maybe I need to move on. Um, that kind of uh, continued that our mission. We did get a name, by the way. Um, we were... Uh, we were in a meeting, and Curtis's father was father-in-law was an advertising agent, and uh, so uh, he had done these little storyboards of all these different possible names uh, for our ministry. And one was 
he kind of looked at you know young life, student life, campus crusade for Christ, and he really was just kind of trying to copy all these things. He had all these little storyboards, and one was like students crusading on fire for Christ or something like that. You know, <laughs> it was like. No, you know, I don't think we're going to be students on fire crusading and leading masses of passionate hymns like that. So then the next one was student reach. It was like students on fire and, you know, that just um, crusading for the life of people who don't pray. No, it's just that was way too much. But student reach was just kind of like not enough, you know. You know, student reach is like, Student and reach, it's a, that's kind of a reach, you know, it's like, can we do better than that? And then there was one that sounded a lot like, um, um, and it was like young people's life, or sounded like young life, but student life and young. And then the last one, so we had young and students, we had student reach, that was kind of weak. And then there was this, there was like a C, and it was an O inside it, and the O had the globe. And it just said, campus outreach. And this is really, we had these four boards up there. And I just, I just said, campus outreach. And just kind of falls and everybody was like, campus outreach. And we all just kind of started saying, campus outreach. Well, we're campus outreach. So that, you know, I hate to tell you, that's how the name, that's how we got the name. It was like, I'm not going to go, and really, you know, we were going talking to people. And asking them to support discipleship. And then when they had to make their checks out, because we didn't have a bank account, uh, there was one of these, uh, Curtis, uh, they had this bank account that was a branch account that was open through this church account. And it, was a, it was just called a branch account. So we were actually asking people to make checks out for branches. And uh, it was just, it was probably illegal. I'm sure it was. And uh, we didn't have a name. But anyway. It was a big step forward when we when we came up with the name Campus Outreach, and so we were um, we were ministering on campuses in the state of Alabama, and uh, our board we kind of formed a board, and our board talked about let's expand, and we looked at the campuses around outside the state. We looked at Tennessee, and the campuses that were in greatest proximity were in Georgia, so we said we're going to go to West Georgia, and. Um, so when we came up with uh, a name, we also came up with a little, uh, and actually it didn't have glorifying God on it. Uh, I'll tell you that, uh, how that made it up there. But uh, uh, our theme was, our mission was building labors on the campus for the lost world. And back in the 90s, we had a conference where we invited John Piper to speak. And we spent some time with him. And at the end of the conference, uh, we were having a meal with him and talking about him. And he said, why does your mission statement not have anything about glorifying God in it? And uh, we were like, well, in discipleship, we only had four lessons. You know, spirits, and then we did lordship, and we didn't have anything about glorifying God. And so he's like, you ought to put that in your, you ought to put that in your uh, mission statement. So the next week, that became part of our mission statement, glorifying God. So I have to give credit. I'm sure it goes back to not only the Westminster Confession of Faith and uh, the Bible, but John Piper said, get, get and we didn't have campus outreach here in Minneapolis, but we were like, yeah, we ought to put that in there. That's probably, <laughs> that's right. and that's, that's really how it went. We're like, change the literature, we're going to panel whatever, you know, we're going with glorifying God. All right, we're for, we're for that. Um, this is the actual first beach project we ever had. Uh, this is 52 students 
on the very first trip. This is 1981, okay? And uh, I'm sad to say, I'm not even in the picture. You know, isn't that awful? But uh, this cute little blonde here, right here, is my, the love of my life, Sandra. And uh, when we took the picture, believe it or not, some of us didn't even get there. I missed the picture. So I'm not even in the first picture. I am in the second picture. Um, and this was 1983. We went from, we went from uh, 51 students to 99 students. And I didn't take my sunglasses off uh, right there. So I'm actually the cool, the cool guy there in the picture. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I don't think we looked that bad. Not Maybe not. 99 students from that first project. But back on this project, which is interesting, is um, when Curtis talked to us about starting our own beach project, he said that, um, you know, we don't really have any leaders that have had any experience who want to start our own beach project. So in 1980, let's see if this was right. This was 82. Okay, so in 1981, he challenged us to go on a Campus Crusade for Christ beach project and learn everything we could about it. And this was like <laughs> April. And uh, so... There were 17 of us, well, 20 of us in the room, 17 of us. It sounds like a cult, I know, okay? <laughs> and it had cult-like uh, characteristics, I know that. But, uh, so I went home, and this is kind of how I got started with my parents. I went home and told my, uh, I told my parents, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on this summer project, and uh, we're going to go to uh, one of these locations. You filled out an application, and the Campus Crusade sent you to one of 17 different locations. Some of my friends got sent to Hawaii, believe it or not, and uh, Virginia Beach, Yosemite National Park, um, and Curtis spent the summer traveling around and visiting us. We got, there was three of us, and we got sent to Panama City, which is where I went every summer as a high school kid, so it wasn't all that, um, it wasn't all that um, uh, exciting or adventurous, but even then my dad said, well, what, what's the name of this group, and I didn't even have a brochure. I didn't even have a name of the group, and it was like, I couldn't say discipleship because then it wasn't discipleship, but I said, I said, well, we go down there, we work jobs, and, um, and what made it worse, in the spring of that uh, uh, school year, spring football practice, I had broken my collarbone, and uh, I, was, I'm a wide, I was a wide receiver, and uh, the rule on our team was that if you had an injury during spring practice, you had to stay in summer school and rehab to make sure that when the season started, you were prepared. So I told my parents that I was going to tell my coach that I was going to go to the summer project. Well, my parents were like, well, he'll tell you that you can't do it. So they were really like, you know, that's fine. And I went and told him that I felt that this is what God wanted me to do. And he said, well, I just want you to know that I can't guarantee that you'll have a scholarship when you get back from school uh, from your summer. And uh, he said, our injured players stay here in rehab. And I thought, you know, our players. <laughs> you know, you're going to be our player or not. And I really it was a veiled threat. But it was one of those times when it was, it was like the Lord was saying, okay, are you going to trust me? You know, the one who believes in him shall never be disappointed. Do you really believe that? Um, I didn't even have that verse memorized, but I was, at that time, I was at a point where I was trying to decide, do I really believe that God's going to guide my life? And so I told him that, you know, I was going to go to the project, but I'll come back in better shape than I could, could have been if I stayed here. 
I got down to the beach project. Of course, my parents were very upset, and they were like, you know, you're going to lose your scholarship, and, you know, we're going to, they said they were just furious, and, uh, but I determined this is what I was going to do. And so I got down to the beach project, and as I was registering, the guy who was registering to, and found out he was um, one of my roommates, was a defensive back from TCU. And he had made the same kind of commitment, and his coaches had told him, you know, you shouldn't do that, you're, you're going to lose your position. And uh, there, was a, there was a wide receiver who had transferred in uh, to our school from the University of Tennessee, who had been the state 110-yard uh, hurdler champion two years in a row. And he went to Tennessee, and he, you know, uh, failed his grade. And he transferred in, and basically the coaches had said, this is going to work out nicely because Herod's going to go down there and he's going to not be in shape and we're going to give the position to this SEC uh, transfer. And this uh, friend that I got to know from TCU um, began to talk to me about that he felt like God was leading. So we said, well, let's pray that God will just do something in our lives that will be a testimony to our team and to our coaches. And I came back after that summer and I ran a faster 40 time than I'd ever run. I had the best mile time. We trained on the beach, and uh, just really intense, but I outran everybody in the whole team at the best mile time, put 30 pounds on my bench press and squat, and, uh, and I was in the best shape of my life, and I had a great tan. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and our ten the University of Tennessee transfer had plunked out of school. He, he, he couldn't stay eligible in Tennessee. He couldn't stay eligible. And it's just like everything opened up. It was just waiting for me. And uh, yeah, I think the Lord was saying, you know what? Uh, I have no problem taking care of you, Mike. But can you trust me? Will you really trust me? Do you really believe that the one who hopes in me? Because we all hope in something or someone. And we hope that that path or that step is going to bring us uh, the joy and the satisfaction and the security. But the gospel says, hope in me. And if you hope in me, you'll never be disappointed. So uh, here we are. We got a name. We've, uh, I was, I'm kind of out of order. I'm all over the place right now. But uh, uh, we're expanding. We went from 52 students on our first speech project to 99 students on our second beach project. And those shorts on those, those guys on that back row, I mean, you've seen, uh, you've seen the Celtics and the Lakers NBA shorts. I mean, those are, those are definitely some of those uh, sassy shorts right there. All right. Uh, but we got to West Georgia, and uh, the first day I got there, I went and introduced myself to the football coach, Having played at a school that was in the same conference with West Georgia, a school that had been national champions and conference champions, uh, this coach had competed against our team, and he actually you know, knew a lot about our, our school team and basically welcomed me and introduced me to the team the first day of summer practice and, and allowed me to just share the gospel. And I shared the gospel, and I invited everybody to come to it. They wanted to, to come to a pizza dinner on a Friday night. It's going to have as much pizza and Coke and uh, anybody that wanted to talk about what it meant to have a relationship. About 60 guys came, about 60 guys came uh, to the pizza party. These are four of those guys, and number 98 right there 
behind those huge shoulder pads. You know, Ken weighed about 160 pounds, but his shoulder pads were about 30 to 35 pounds. So he was about a 190 uh, linebacker there. Ken Curry came to the pizza party. Well, at the end of it, I asked anybody that would like for someone to talk to them about a relationship with Christ to kind of mark that on their card. Well, I thought Ken had marked, you know, come by and see me. I think it was just one of those grease smudges uh, next to the name. And so uh, I would go by and knock on his door, and he wouldn't answer. Uh, I later found out that, you know, when he would see that I was coming, he would hide close the door. <laughs> he would talk to his friends. He said, you know that kind of weird religious guy that keeps coming around? He said, please let me know because I don't want to talk to him. And, uh, but this guy, Frankie, the number 31 African-American, uh, was the next door neighbor to Ken. And Frankie committed his life to Christ. Neil is big number 68 right there. Uh, he lived uh, on the floor below, but they uh, were both linebackers and trained together. and was a good friend of his. And so Neil came to know Christ that first semester. And Dennis, 47, uh, he uh, probably about November that year came to know Christ. So a lot of Ken's friends were coming to know Christ. And Darren, one day, invited Ken to, I didn't know that, I finally broke through and saw Ken and talked to him, and uh, he basically said politely, I'm not interested, you know, that kind of thing, and please stop coming by and, you know, I want to talk to you. So, uh, but Darren invited Ken to come to church with him one day, and Ken thought, well, that's interesting. You're, you know, all these guys are talking about spiritual things. Ken grew up in Florida, he lived in Texas, and really all over the place, and from a very liberal family, and supposedly open-minded, but definitely not religious in particular. And uh, so he went with Frankie, number 31 there, he went with him to church that next Sunday, and lo and behold, who's teaching the Sunday school class but me? You know, so it's like, I can't get away from this guy. You know, where is he? He's like Waldo. He's everywhere. You know, he just keeps showing up. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't a couple of days later, maybe a week later, and Neil had this Bible study that we had started in his room. Basically, guys who showed an interest, Neil said to me one night, he said, why don't we have this Bible study once a week? If this stuff is so important, shouldn't we do this like once a day? And I'm like, okay. And, uh, he said, and I said, well, anybody you want to invite, I'll come and find a time. And he said, well, I go to class at 8, I have an 8 o'clock class, I have a 9 o'clock class. I have a break from 10 to 11.45, um, but the break because of Monday, Tuesday classes or whatever, it's always at 11 o'clock, so I'm always free at 11. I said, well, just invite anybody to come to your room. When we started this Bible study, it went on for two semesters, every day at 11 o'clock. Well, Neil invited Ken, why don't you come to this Bible study? And Ken was like, okay, showed up, and he was like, this guy, you know, I can't get rid of him. You know, where is he? He's everywhere. Um, but... As Ken was hearing the gospel, God began to soften his heart, and, um, and Darren was sharing with him, and Neil was sharing with him, and uh, it was probably January uh, when we got back to school. He came and found me. It was a little odd. You know, he'd been running from me, and he came and found me, and he said, hey, I want to talk to you. Um, I decided to commit my life to Christ. I want to tell you how everything's changed. Basically, it's like, 
All I want to do is, he said, I, he said, I went home, I had that little track that Darren had given me, I was reading through it, and he said, you know, I couldn't put it down, he talked to me about reading the Bible, and he said, I just want to learn everything I can, will you teach me? This is this radical transformation uh, that was taking place, and that was happening in Darren's life, that was happening in uh, Neil's life, that was happening in Dennis's life, and actually, these are about eight of the guys, let's see, one, two, yeah, about eight of the guys that came to know Christ that first year. Over that four-year period, the second year, 21 guys came to faith. Over a four-year period, 45 guys on the football team came to faith in Christ. And on our campus, this, like, revival broke out over a four-year period. But my wife was, uh, when I was going to the football dorm, she was going to the sorority dorm at, our, at, our, uh, at that university. They had like a hallway uh, for every sorority and there was like five hallways and five different sororities and she just walked in and knocked on the door, introduced herself to the sorority president. She said, I'd like to have a Bible study. Would your sorority be interested? But once she got one, I think the first one she connected with was Five New and they said yes. And when she went to the Alpha Gamma, she said, the five years are letting me have a Bible study. I'd like to have a Bible study. Oh, they're having a Bible study. Well, you can have a Bible study. <laughs> so then when she went to the Zeta, she said, the five years in the Alpha Gams are having a Bible study. I'm available. And she had Bible studies in these five different sororities. Well, the president of Alpha Gamma was Teresa McGibbon. You might know her as Teresa Curry. But uh, so... Uh, Sandra began to share the gospel with Teresa, and Teresa committed her life to Christ and was one of the first girls that came to faith. She was also a cheerleader on that West Georgia campus. And it was like all of a sudden God was saving these high-profile people, and they were sharing with others who were sharing with others. And by the second or third year there, we had like 300 people coming to these weekly meetings. And what was amazing about it it was mostly students. There was a couple of staff people, but it was these students who were radically committed to living for Christ, believing God. They were going on beach projects. They were telling their coach, you know, we're going to go to the project and we're going to grow spiritually. And they were kind of buying into that idea that the one who believes in him will never be disappointed. And um, Really, the campus outreach growth strategy is not really complex. This is somewhat of a, an updated version of the circles here. Uh, but you start with just building a leader. And then that leader builds a team. You're saying about the state people, I'm giving you the strategy right here, okay? You build a man, you build a woman, you build a team, and that team grows and leads a movement and you develop, mentor, and train, and the revival breaks out. Uh, it just starts with uh, helping people understand that the gospel comes to them, begins to work through them, and then begins to spread. The gospel comes to them, works in them, and then spreads through them. Now, um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit here because Andrew wanted the story. Um, these are some of the guys that were from the West Georgia days. Clint Watson, who was a football player there. Ken Curry, Neil Gooch, Russell Long. I mentioned Darren Franklin. Bottom row, Tony Chester was a baseball player. You can see David Burns was a very sad and mad basketball player. Uh, 
you know, he had spent a lot of time in jail, I guess. And, uh, and Brian Lewis had been uh, on, he'd been a football player, excuse me, a basketball player at Stanford. He came over as a staff guy. And really, these are the guys that began to grow the future of campus outreach. Um, Clint uh, worked with us in Augusta, and then he went to start campus outreach in Atlanta. And just think about this for a second. Clint was a guy that, uh, that I led to Christ and discipled. And uh, Clint eventually started Campus Outreach Atlanta, which Campus Outreach Atlanta reached uh, students at the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech and North Georgia. And one girl who came to faith was a girl named Sarah, Sarah Link. She's now Sarah Knight, if you uh, know that name. And uh, she was led to Christ by a girl that Clint's uh, wife, Peggy, had discipled. Peggy was one of those Alpha Gammas back at West Georgia and uh, that uh, Sandra had discipled with Teresa and she wanted to marry Clint. Uh, Ken joined Campus Outreach Augusta, but then Ken went on to start Campus Outreach Greenville. Uh, that's that picture coming down. Ken's the third one there coming down. And uh, Campus Outreach Greenville reached students at Furman, reached students at Wofford, reached students at Presbyterian College. And the staff that came to Minnesota, uh, how many years ago, Andrew? Twelve. Twelve. The staff that came to Minnesota, Minnesota, uh, I've got that one down, okay, were mainly students that Ken and Teresa had led to Christ and discipled at Greenville. Neil went on to start Campus Hour at Charlotte and then went to Johannesburg and uh, started the ministry in Johannesburg and, you, and Rupert went to Charleston and then Raleigh and, and on and on and on. Uh, we calculated recently what we thought was a general uh, number of people that we think over the last 30 years have come to know Christ from that initial discipleship group at West Georgia. You know, this one here, Ken, that group right there. Uh, we calculated it, and we think, you know, and it's a running number, we think about 35,000 people have come to faith in Christ just from the witness of these guys who told someone, 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 who told, someone, who told you, right? Now, a little uh, lesson here in uh, science. Um, anybody know how many seeds, how many seeds are in an apple? Usually, you know, if it's not, uh, if it's not uh, some mutation, usually about six, right? So there's six seeds in an apple. Yeah. All right. Now, what we tend to do is we eat the apple, right? And we throw away the seeds, right? Well, let me ask you this. 
if there's six, there we go, if there's six seeds in an apple, how many apples are in a seed? Well, yeah, maybe infinite, right? Who knows? Because we tend to throw these little seeds away, and they're the key to the whole operation. You know, this is, this is God's plan for changing the whole world. And really, what God calls you to do is not so much to be a, an apple, not so much to be fruitful. God just calls you to be a faithful seed. Well, isn't this interesting when you think about the analogy here? Um, what the Bible actually says is, what's your name? Emily. All right. You didn't have your name tag on. That person? Kirsten. Kirsten. Okay. Minnesota. Kirsten. All right. <laughs> we got it going. Emily. All right. And you are? Rob. Rob. All right. Now, Jesus was concerned about you, Kirsten. He was burdened for you, Emily. He was interested in your college days, Robert. So he sent us to Carrollton, Georgia to make sure that somebody was taking care of that little seed. The seed of your life that was buried in the gospel that was going to get to you when you got here. But in order for the gospel to be waiting on you when you got here, somebody had to tell somebody who 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 had to tell Ken. You see where I'm going with that? Now, there are gospel seeds inside of you. You realize that? You represent, isn't that what Genesis says? It says that I am going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars or the sands <coughs> of the sea. And that in your seed, we're going to bless the nations. So when God saves you, he not only was concerned about you, but he's concerned about Africa, and he's concerned about Malaysia, and he's concerned about your family, and he's concerned about the nation. How many seeds in an apple, how many apples in a seed? God's plan for multiplication. Don't quit on discipleship. If you're just getting started, let me tell you, don't quit on discipleship. Um, i got to land the plane here and just mention a couple of things to you. Um, I'm going to get to that in just a second. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and show you now. Just a couple of snapshots of people that have been gospel seeds that have been sent out from that original group, discipleship group. Um, this is Frankie, which I mentioned to you. Darren Franklin, he's high school principal in the city of Atlanta. He's probably led as many people to Christ in personal conversations as... I have, and I've been in full-time ministry the last 30 years, and he's been, um, he's, he's led hundreds of people to Christ. This is Tim Bird, who is ministering in South Africa. Tim came to know Christ through the ministry in Charlotte, 
And Tim's whole life is given to discipling college students in Johannesburg, raising his family there. Uh, this is Mark Batluck. He was here um, how many years? Four years. Four years. Uh, was on staff here. He's in China with his family. Um, and uh, he's a professor at a university there. He'd been in Scotland before that. Uh, this is Carl Rogers. He went to Georgia Southern and was led to Christ through a guy that Neil led to Christ. You may recognize this picture. Uh, this is Gerard Butler, who is, uh, was in the 300 movie. You know, he was the warrior there, 300 movie. That's Carl Rogers, who's a creative executive in Hollywood. Uh, works for Alcon Entertainment. You've probably seen some of their movies, Blindside, Book of Eli, uh, The Sisterhood of Traveling Pants, uh, Emily, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Dolphin Tail. But uh, Carl is in Hollywood and as a committed follower of Christ is making disciples there. Uh, this is Vic Stutzman and his wife. He went to Valdosta. Ken led him to Christ when he was there. Uh, Vic is, lives on the border between, around the edge of where China and North Korea meet, and he leads a movement of Chinese believers who go into North Korea to share the gospel at the threat of their life um, so that those that are under the oppression of the fascist government and communism might hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Tommy Jones, who played football at Furman. He's a football coach in the Atlanta area, and he shares Christ. And I threw in Robert Adahold, which was a guy that I had influenced. He's in Congress right now. He's a 12-time congressman from the state of Alabama. Now, what is my point? God has no problem taking our little seeds of the gospel and multiplying it to reach the whole world. And you know what? He has no problem at meeting our needs either. Uh, I mentioned uh, I mentioned at the beginning that one of the questions my father asked was how are you going to pay for your kids college right I had pretty much an answer uh, for uh, all the other questions I think that idea of I'm going to trust God seemed a little bit distant but I knew that I didn't have any children at the time. It wasn't something that I really needed to think much about. But about 18, let's see, I guess it would have been about 24 years later, I was asking that question. Okay, how am I going to pay for my kids' college? And, uh, you know, my kids were, I have four children, and uh, we for, did the best we could to provide for them in every way, but we didn't have a college fund, and there was, there was no money at the end of the month for us to invest in, uh, in a, uh, you know, some kind of a 501 or a 409 or a 50K or, you know, we didn't have anything like that, okay? And uh, my, 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 my two oldest boys, Keith and Chris, finished college with no debt. Didn't, not, not a penny, didn't cost, we never, we did not, carry anything. In fact, my oldest has not only gotten his master's and his PhD, still has not paid, uh, has not had any residual uh, expense to himself. My second son, Chris, is a pharmacist now, and uh, other than his last 
year of pharmacy, never took out any loan, never an undergrad all the way through. We have two children that are in college now, and uh, my daughter Anna and my son Connor. And as of right now, somehow God's providing. And uh, I found it very interesting that when Keith got to Georgia Tech, that one of those pictures had a guy named Clint in the picture. Clint was on staff with Campus Outreach, and he was working at Georgia Tech, and he was my son's discipleship leader. Now think about this for just a second. When my dad was asking me 24 years earlier, how are you going to pay for your kids' college? He's basically saying, are you going to be able to provide for your children the way that I've provided for you? Well, God's answer when I said I'm going to trust God is not only am I going to provide for them financially, I'm going to provide for their spiritual well-being. Because 20 years earlier, God used me to lead somebody to Christ that when my son showed up at college, he was going to disciple my son. You think about that. Is that not... It was just one of those seeds that was buried inside that gospel message. I'm sure glad I didn't quit discipleship. Uh, I hope you don't quit discipleship. I want you to know that uh, it is an opportunity for you to trust God with your life. Discipleship is an opportunity for you to say, I'm going to take my little seed, my little life, and I'm going to invest it in, throw it down and invest it in the work of the gospel and just see what God can do. His promise is that you'll never be disappointed. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for taking our little insignificant, unimportant lives and turning them into something that brings you glory. We don't deserve it, but we marvel at it. Thank you for the work that you're doing here in this city and in these campuses. And I pray that this weekend you'll light the fire with uh, in, in, a renewed, in a renewed way for some and in a new way for others to see what it really means to trust you. You promised the one who trusts in me will never be disappointed. And I pray and trust that you'll strengthen our belief and trust even this weekend. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you've ever been to one of our conferences, or maybe some of the other things you do, you know that one of the things I do at the end of the talk is I have one thought for you to write down. So if you have your little notebook, which is at the bottom of the page, on the, the talk notes page, you have a thing that says one thought. It's an opportunity for you to, to have one little takeaway, maybe something that the Lord's been impressing upon you over the, all the things that Mike said in the last 45 minutes or so uh, that you want to take with you and remember. So uh, take the next minute, maybe two minutes, to think about that one thought and jot it down. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at clminneapolis.org.